we are the first generation to completely understand the effects of anthropogenic climate change and quite possibly could be the last generation to create effective change. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana College of Business. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Hey folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. You might be surprised to see us in your feed on a Friday morning, but this is a special occasion. Conrad Anker is here. Conrad is a legendary mountaineer and leader in the outdoor community. For nearly 30 years, he led the North Face athlete team, and his resume of climbing achievements is largely unmatched, both in terms of difficulty and longevity. Conrad is also a mentor, a philanthropist, and an activist, all important passion areas for him that we talk about today. With the election underway, Conrad and his colleagues at Protect Our Winters and other environment-oriented organizations are upping the volume on the climate crisis. And Conrad's had a front row seat to climate change through his many years traveling to wild landscapes significantly altered by warmer temperatures, more extreme weather, and many other factors. And Conrad is also a Montanan. He and his family live in Bozeman and are actively engaged in the environmental politics of our state. He wants people to vote and he wants people to think about the climate when they do. It was a great honor to spend some time with Conrad Anker, and I'm excited for you to hear our conversation right now. Okay, so we're here today with Conrad Anker. Conrad, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Justin, and uh, it's a real honor to be on your show. Yeah, so this was this was a long time coming. I'm really excited. Uh, before we get into so much to talk about, just want to check in. You know how how are how are you and your family doing? This is a, a an interesting time. The run up to the election. COVID-19, all of that. How, how does this time find you and your family? Well, thanks for asking. Um, I'm here in Bozeman, Montana, and um, my wife, Jenny, and I are here. We uh, were married coming up on 20 years ago, and we have uh, three grown sons. The youngest graduated university this June, so that was uh, my summit, so to say, of um, something I wanted to finish up with uh, the boys in school, so that was a real happy moment. Um, but Prior to that, we all were um, affected by COVID and the um, where it is in, in sort of the, the bigger sense, the economy, um, societal, and then um, sort of a, a reset of what's important in life. So yeah. that being said, I still have uh, plenty of opportunity to enjoy Montana's wonderful public lands um, at a more... Um, a downtuned COVID pace, <laughs> so you know, playing it even more safe, so I don't burden the hospitals. And but uh, being here and uh, having a chance to uh, understand how connected we are um, as a community, as a state, as a region, as a nation, and as a planet. Yeah, I would think you know, COVID's had sort of it's affecting all of us, but it's affecting us in, in different ways. I mean, you mentioned there you know, probably some of the bigger travel sort of expedition style projects that have been off of the the menu, but you're able to get out, you know, locally and in many of the great um, public lands and so forth in Montana. How has it sort of changed your or affected your um, conceptualization of risk and kind of what you're willing to, to do and not do under the circumstance? Yeah, great question, Justin. Um, so this is the first year in a 
in 15 months since 1988 that I haven't had the opportunity to travel to the Himalayas and wow. whether it's Nepal, Pakistan, India, um, or Tibet, having been in those, it's a part of what I love being over there and the people that I'm with. And that type of expeditionary climbing is, um, it involves risk. You're out in the middle of nowhere and a rescue isn't, um, easily accessible. But, um, when COVID, um, became part of our lives in the second week in March, um, there was quite a bit of conversation about, well, you shouldn't go out climbing. And if you do fall, then you'll be in the, you'll overburden the, uh, the hospital. And so that was initially the case. And then everyone was, we were hand sanitizing and we we're taking misting alcohol water solutions onto the handholds of the boulders and really kind of studying into that. And um, yeah. as the disease has progressed, we're now um, um, doing little different things and kind of a, uh, a funny side note on that is a uh, friend of mine is in the healthcare service. And um, when COVID first hit, it was like people were mailing all these pizzas up and, <laughs> and they had no patience because we were, I mean, it just wasn't, they weren't in the hospital. It wasn't yeah. um, that really tragic scene that we're, that was coming out of New York city in, in April and, and, and just, you know, when it was flaring up the COVID and, and so now I went out climbing with him the other day and he's like, yeah, we're like full on and we're working harder than we ever. And there's no pizzas. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. The pizza train has ended. Yeah. Well, it's all going to back on to work. So to say. Yeah. It was, it was a strange time here, you know, March, April, you know, I, I'm a pretty passionate uh, backcountry skier and, you know, me and my buddies were sort of thinking through those same calculations. Like what is the appropriate amount of risk to be taking you know, I sort of felt like I, I don't really feel comfortable jumping in a car with with a buddy or, you know, some of these drives that involve stopovers in small towns in rural Montana that don't have the medical infrastructure. And then, and as you mentioned, sort of a stress on the search and rescue function uh, if, if you have an accident and and all of those things. Uh, you know, I think it's it's interesting in that those thoughts were super salient in March and April when we had a fraction of the disease that we have in our community now. Um, but it doesn't seem like folks are, are, are willing to kind of go back to that level of vigilance and it's, it's hard to do. It's hard to turn that on and off, but it, it feels like a time where we should be, uh, taking it maybe more seriously as a collective than we are. Yeah. Good point. And as of, uh, yesterday, Montana was third in the nation in per capita infections. So along with the Dakotas, we're right there. And, um, this conversation, I don't hear it happening at, um, um, within our community of outdoor enthusiasts, like, Oh, we should do something a little less. I mean, I'm not out pushing the boundaries of ability along those lines, but I also see that, um, in, in looking at, um, places of where they serve alcoholic libations and people are they're they're in those places and they're and they're it's a different form of recreation but the the it's almost as if well covid's now six months into it if it hasn't come by or i'm gonna have it run i'll get it and i'll come back stronger so there's a little a little disconnect in that yeah for sure i mean it's been we could spend a whole series of episodes in getting into this but you know i was sort of 
baffled in some ways. I mean, restaurants and bars are important parts of the economy. I understand that. They also have a symbolic importance to community, but it also seemed a little baffling that that much of the conversation was focused on restaurants and bars and, and not necessarily around schools yeah. and childcare and healthcare for folks that need it and other sort of what I would consider to be more essential services. Yeah, hundred percent. And it's, um, yeah, it was hard on a lot of businesses, uh, restaurants, many of them didn't reopen after the, um, the initial lockdown, but, um, yeah, where we're at with the education system and, and our healthcare system is, is more of a priority. And so when, right before we started recording, you you had made the comment that, you know, this has been with the lead up to the election, this has been probably the most politically engaged time of your life. Um, one of the motivations for this conversation is the importance of the issue of climate to you, your work with protect our winters. Um, let's, t- I want to talk all about climate, but, but having had such a, long and prolific career in the mountains and in wild spaces. When did climate kind of arrive on your radar screen as something you you started thinking about? Probably the first inclination of heat and climate was probably where my grandmother and grandfather had a small restaurant and and their place in Central California, my brother and sister are still there. Both my parents have passed away. But I remember sitting one time there and watching a car pull up at the top of the grade and was overheating. And it was just, you know, the radiator exploded and the car was just, and it was a common thing. It's a steep 2,000 foot elevation gain. It's just hard on vehicles. And, <laughs> and then looking at the asphalt and the heat there, and I was like, every time one of these engines heats up, it warms up. And so that was um, kind of this understanding of warming when I was a teenager. But um, it came into being in the um, when I started mountain climbing and to go into alpine climbing and with trips to Alaska. So a lot of um, the research that you do prior to an expedition is um, looking previous expeditions to a range, where they climbed, what they'd done. Um, and um, going all the way back to Vittoricella in the 1890s, there's photographic record of climbing expeditions on the mountains. And um, so in seeing the change that um, places in Alaska, um, the Himalayas, the Karakoram, and routes that when they were established, they had a mass of ice on them. And then subsequently, they were not um, climbable at all. And two specific mountains. One was the Ogre, um, which... Uh, Doug Scott was famously rescued off with broken ankles and one of the greatest epic stories of survival. And the route that they climbed is is no longer in existence. It's completely melted off and there's recently exposed granite there, which is um, not optimal for climbing. And then the other one was Chilatse in the Kumbu Himal. And there, the, the, the Firn line where the ablation of a glacier um, where it accumulates above and it and it um, dissipates melts below had moved up 3,000 feet 1,000 meters and wow. repeating a route that a uh, Chilatse, which was by climbed by Vern Clevenger, Galen Rowell and John Ross Kelly and we went to go climb in 2005 and it was same sort of story that happened on the Ogre that there um, the the ice had just it melted away, and there was a recently exposed uh, rock on there. 
And in a similar way, looking at permanent snowfields here in Montana, one of the ways we can look at the stability of talus fields and how long rock has been exposed is the size of the lichen. And when you're in these mountain ranges in Absorkes and you come across an area and, you, and it's like, wow, that place had a permanent snowfield up until recently because right. just on this aspect over here, there's, there's a centuries old lichen and then here there's absolutely nothing and that had had a snowfield on it. So all these small indications that by by dint of being passionate about climbing, I was seeing the changes in the mountains. And what effect is that having on on you? I mean, you're seeing some of it through your research, but as you mentioned before, whether it's you know in, in the Absorkes or in Nepal or in Antarctica, like places you're traveling to again and again with with longer intervals in between, like how how is this sort of affecting your relationship to these landscapes and how you're thinking about them? The, well, I'm a mountaineer, so I'm the ears of the mountains. That's a silly joke. It's a pun. Yeah. <laughs> a full dad-worthy joke. So. Well done. <laughs> yeah. So we, we're, we're the eyes and ears of the mountains. And, and climbing in the mountains, yeah, we'll be straight up. It's selfish. It's ego-driven. It doesn't, it's not like we're becoming better scientists or doctors or computer technicians or anything like that. We're going up there for... Um, for our own enjoyment, recreation, rejuvenation, and ideally on a towards one's self-actualization of like what you really want to do in sure. in life. And so, yeah, climbing is great; it's fun, but it's it's giving us a a measuring stick. We are the canary in the coal mine with climate change that's happening now. And whereas, yeah, the if there might not be an ice route or the ice climbing season is shorter, and we'll adapt to it, we'll have fun. Yeah, but it's. It's not like it's a major thing that that a, a a privileged white person like myself, male to boot, living in Montana, is like, oh, you don't get as many days skiing in there. Yeah, right. Boo-hoo. But we are seeing climate change, and the people that are affected by it are um, the people that aren't necessarily causing the level of CO2 increase. So um, say for people in Bangladesh, the areas there that are affected by the typhoons and monsoons that come in and um, their quality of life. And so in places where there's seasonal flooding or Houston, Texas, getting hit twice with a hurricane in one season, things like that, these are real tangible effects of what climate is. And if we experience it in our recreation, that's good, but it's still a very, um, there's the effects affect more people around the world than what we think and dis- disproportionately um, lower income communities, communities of color. And so in that sense, there's a responsibility on our part to address this. Absolutely. Have you, and I know it's been, you know, a year without a, a trip to the Himalaya, um, but knowing how important that community and the Sherpa are, are to you, uh, has there been any effects within in those communities? Is it affecting their livelihood, their relationship to the land, and so forth? Yeah, great question. So uh, Jennifer and I have a close connection with the village of Fortse, which is in Nepal, and um, the uh, the site of the Kungu Climbing Center, a vocational training program for high altitude workers in Nepal. And um, 
and working in conjunction with the Nepalis there. But um, in Nepal, there's not this societal question of is climate change real? It's like it's very real, and yeah, it's happening. Yeah, and Nepal is um, by the current definition a victim nation because they are not producing the CO2 per capita that's causing climate change, but like the people of the Maldives, the people of Nepal that are in the Himalayas, they are going to be suffering the effects of it. So um, near-term prognosis is um, accelerated melting of glaciers. Those would then can uh, release more water if the water um, leaves the mountains in a normal fashion things are well but the opportunity or the the risk of glacial lake outburst floods so where previous um, terminal moraines that were there from the 1850s or 14,000 or 20,000 years ago those then fill up with water um, and then they're catastrophically uh, released so that would be um, an example of of how in those areas but there's also um, most human observation of climate is anecdotal. Oh, it was warmer then, or at Thanksgiving right. it always did this. And they bring us a, a connection to it, but it's not climate and weather are connected. Weather is what's happening today. Climate is a long-term um, understanding of it. And for a lot of the the people in the villages, they they see these changes and there is a connection to atmospheric co2 and so they they're not they're not in this uh debate as well 98 percent of scientists agree that climate change is anthropogenic climate change is real and, and that we need to address it and two percent say no and, and out of fairness of debate we need to have that two percent get 50 percent of the conversation rather they're like climate change is real what can we do on our part to help um mitigate the challenges yeah, it's interesting how it's sort of become a such a politicized topic here in the U.S. I mean, some of the sort of foundational conservation-oriented pieces of legislation or policies can be attributed attributable to Republicans in many ways. And you know, I don't want to get necessarily too partisan about this conversation, but you know, the conservation space in general has been an area, um, and particularly in this sort of unique form of purple that Montana occupies. It's been an area where left and right can kind of come together and share some common objectives for how to be better stewards of, of, of the land. Talk about your perspective on that, particularly here in Montana. Yeah. So Theodore Roosevelt was um, given a large credit, large amount of credit for the creation of the national park system. And then his um, deep belief in the rugged life and getting outdoors and the benefits of that. Um, and then under president Nixon, we had the environmental protection agency and the clean air and the clean water act. Um, so both of those are, um, instances where, um, people are with that. And Montana is interesting, maybe unique, but maybe not in that voters here our access to public lands and the quality of life that brought us to Montana and that keeps us here is of great importance. And so the, um, it, it, for many of the citizens of Montana, public lands is their single issue voting 
I encourage people not to be single issue voters about any one thing and to be look at it from a holistic and from everything that's in there, um, civil rights to um, economic um, the opportunity um, and, and how we treat people um, and then including that in the environment. But that within Montana, that outdoors is such a part of our fabric that it it spills over into the political process. You know, and it strikes me, you know, I just watched um, a few days ago a new film by one of your uh, Protect Our Winters colleagues, Jeremy Jones, Purple Mountains, which sort of takes a really courageous attempt to have hard conversations um, with people that you you might not ordinarily agree on much, but maybe you can come together on understanding the importance of these natural spaces. You know, there's kind of a quote in the opening of that film that kind of references something you said earlier about climbing being essentially a, you know, a, a bit of a selfish pursuit and, and a big, bit of a luxury, you know, that, Hey, you get to sort of play in the mountains while I have to do hard real work. I mean, there's people out there that sort of claim, well, I, I just, you know, all I can do is, is kind of work and put food on the table and provide for my family. I don't have time to really think about the climate, um, whereas for you, it's kind of a luxury to be able to think about it because you're in this privileged position of being a professional adventurer or a recreator or whatever. How do, how do you kind of think about those tensions in a way that, that we can maybe make progress uh, in these sorts of conversations? Yeah, and great effort on Jeremy and Purple Mountain and the film that they brought together there and in, in creating that dialogue. And yeah, in one of the most common um, darts that's launched at me in social media is that, yeah, what do you know? You're a person of privilege and you get to play in the mountains all the time. And um, so it's the, um, I work as a guide, I work in media, I work in product development. So it's kind of a piecing together a variety of different ways of, um, of earning a living. But it, um, it certainly feels like work day in and day out. Sure. Having, um, I love carpentry. I love working in the woods and a lot of these things. So I, it's, um, it's not there. So, but at some point we all, regardless of our economic station in life, we recreate because it brings joy to us and that it can be unloading a clip with your AR Bushmaster at the, at the, at the target range. It can be, practicing your piano it can be writing poetry it can be stamp collecting trail running mountain bike whatever we we do things that bring us life and so accepting people in prison pretty much everyone has some moment in their life where they're they're not working and they're doing something that brings them happiness and um, if that happiness happens to connect to the environment, then you're more aware of it. At the end of the day, we we all recreate in one form or the other. And when your recreation is connected to climate and thermal regulation, you're more aware of the natural world. Yeah, that, that makes good sense. And it kind of makes me think about, you know, Montana's in this interesting space. Um, gosh, I mean, we should also mention that, you know, we're recording this um, on on October 13th, October 12th is Indigenous Peoples Day. 
and you know the, the the sort of history of of the white man's relationship to the land here is fraught in, in many ways and then you layer on top of that this notion of you know montana's history as a as a state built on an extraction economy now maybe transitioning to a state sort of built more on a tourism economy you know, when you think about climate and conservation, environmental activism, I mean, one of the, the tools you can use to bring people into understanding the importance of these issues is getting them out there in wild spaces. Yet getting more people out in wild spaces puts more stress on the resource. And so there's this, this balancing act. And then it's sort of a, a conversation about privilege. Well, just because I've been recreating in this space my whole life doesn't mean it's any more mine than somebody that's never been here before and wants to, to check it out and, and, and come to the party as well. And how do you kind of think about those trade-offs with regard to you know, getting this message about the importance of climate out there, but also being mindful of the, the impacts that getting more people out will have. Yeah, there's the uh, responsible hashtagging movement and right. um, all this and that. But um, yeah, the yeah, I promote climbing. That's what my job is, and I'm I get that. So I'm either guilty or of doing something wrong, or I'm happy that I've encouraged more people to get outdoors. And being outdoors is good for humans. It's good for our soul. It's a great way to recuperate. And just being on a trail and being out of our oversubscribed plastic, steel, glass, rectilineal, concrete world, we get to be in nature and we we come back rejuvenated. And um, it's uh, whenever I see someone out recreating, I smile, I say hello to them. Yeah, we're fortunate in Montana. I I don't, I've never had an overcrowded climbing experience. Um, so it's always been a fewer people, but um, it's also self-selecting in that I know areas where there might not be as many people and I can adjust my recreation. Um, it's not say like Clear Creek Canyon in the front range of Colorado in between, I'm um, just outside of Golden where you have a huge major urban area when easily accessible, well-protected sport climbing. And there you get, you see people queuing up for climbs and dogs and music and all of this. And that's fine. I'm, I'm glad people are out there having a good time. So, <laughs> and, you know, this is like, oh, you're ruining my experience. But I think now after COVID, we realize that connecting with other people is part of the human experience too. A New Angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. I'm Maureen Dowd of The New York Times, and you're listening to A New Angle. Whether you were to go to a concert or a stadium game, being in that space with those other humans is an affirmation of your being and your humanity. And in that same sense, if we look at seeing other people outdoors, that they... Uh, affirm our presence on this planet. Yeah, that connection with other people is such an important thread and it seems like it's been such an important thread in your life as well. Some of these just high profile expedition experiences you've had, those are really where deep relationships and friendships and trust uh, are forged through some shared suffering. 
maybe talk about that a little bit. How have you come to connect with other people um, more deeply through your experiences in these wild places? Being outdoors is participatory. So if we go outside for our, our walk this afternoon or your run, you're doing it yourself. You're not plugging into the media machine to watch a basketball game, which I enjoy watching and I love sports. And But it's about going out and, and doing that experience. And so if Justin, you and I were to climb together and hopefully get a chance to do that one of these days, that when we tie into the rope, we are a team. And our adversary is, number one, gravity. Number two, the cliff that we're climbing on, the feature of the rock, the type of rock. Then we have the weather to layer on there. And throughout all of this, we have this connection that your belaying me, your trust of me is what I need to enjoy nature. And so that connection that you have to trust another person in the outdoor space is, is priceless. And that is one of the good messages in that why people, when they when there is challenges, where there are ways that are, that are difficult, that they, they seek solace in the outdoors. And um, we'll use Camp David as an example outside of Washington, D.C., where here we have a retreat that the president could bring world leaders in that didn't have the the structure and the authority of the of Washington D.C. and the regulation and, and all of that, but rather it was outdoors. And you can imagine them having a campfire and s'mores, and then going for a walk in the Sidious Hardwood Forest there, and, and talking about Mid-East peace and, and doing those things. And that even something as simple as walking outdoors, you're watching out for the person you're there. I mean, there could be a bear that jumps out of the trees or something like that, or a tree could fall down. There is some bit of risk that sure. makes you connect to the other human. And I think that's a, a good thing. Yeah. It's funny, you know, as you, as you lay that out there, you know, I often sort of say when I'm heading out for a run, you know, my kids will say, well, where are you going? What are you doing, dad? And I'll say, well, I'm going to solve the world's world's problems. And you know, your example is quite literal. Like you can bring together people in an outdoor setting where you strip away so much of that unnecessary formality you realize that, hey, we're, we're people and we have common goals and common things that we can sort of um, work toward. Um, yeah, that's that's hugely impactful. You know, something you said in there, um, you talked a little bit about risk. And that's a that's something I've I've wanted to ask you for a while is, you know, this relationship to risk and how it's sort of. It's got to be part of the attraction in some ways to climbing. Um, but you're doing this with other people and you've sort of confronted risk on so many levels. It's kind of a constant, but you've also had loss of, of your mentors, of peers, of people you've been a mentor to, like, how, how do you kind of grapple with the concept of risk both in the moment and then over the, over the arc of a lifetime in, in, in the wilderness? Yeah. Great question. So, um, we go climbing and it's obviously we're putting ourselves in a more dangerous place. I mean, we could minimize all the risk and not go outdoors, but being outdoors where you have to perform. So if you make a mistake climbing, gravity doesn't, there's no, you don't get a, a boogie shot or whatever, a bogey shot and a makeover. It's like, no, gravity is going to just accelerate till you land at the bottom of the mountain and you're dead. And so, yeah, I've become far too 
too much of that, as you mentioned, my mentors, yeah. um, my peers and my the people that I've, um, my mentees and all of that is in there that I've, I've lost that. And there's danger, which is a threat to our existence. So identifying danger and then we evaluate that to see what the risk is. What is the risk of that danger event happening to an individual? And for myself, my factory setting at birth was hyperactive, wired, um, sure. ADHD, just, you know, it was crazy. I, second grade was a, a challenge trying to, <laughs> to like all this data come streaming into my mind and I didn't have a to-do list or I hadn't uh, been outdoors. And so my parents were like, okay, no medication, more time outdoors, less sugar. That was their Yeah. Just run this guy it. hot. Yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Go outdoors until you're so tired that you lay down. So that was, um, and I'm thankful for them because it, it set me on the right path and it was um, rather than a pharmacological solution to a ch- child's hyperactivity that was getting outdoors. And that trait of being hyper situationally aware is what has kept me alive in the mountains. So all that data that was screaming for my attention, now when I'm outdoors, I'm listening to the snowpack. I'm I'm observing the snowpack. I'm making a decision whether I will ski that run given the amount of data that I have in there. And so the same thing applies when you're climbing, that all of a sudden when you're on a rock climb and you're, you have to, how do I hold on to that handhold for optimum and not fall off? Then the rest of this stuff we call life, the your mortgage payment that's due on the fifth of each month and <laughs> COVID crisis, all that, it doesn't, it's like, it's gone. You are yeah, living in the moment. No and in that sense, it's sort of this, active meditation that gives us um, uh, some somewhere to go in life. Yeah. I mean, it, to me, like that's part of the attraction in many ways, like the, these, these, these situations we put ourselves in force us to strip away all that stuff and focus uh, on the moment and, and nothing else. Uh, yet at the same time, it's sometimes hard to crowd out all that noise I would suppose, you know, I've never done an expedition, anything like the scale of the expeditions that, that have been a big part of your life. I mean, there's probably a process of, of getting into that headspace. Probably takes certainly a lot more than a day to get there. You know, what's that kind of process like for you of, of, of gearing up, you know, leaving the family, getting into that proper headspace to, to confront that level of risk and make good decisions and then, and then come back to, to, the, to the, the other part of life. Yeah. An expedition is kind of a full circle. You'll start out with the, of the idea of it, then you have the planning and then the preparation, the equipment, and then you travel, you go do it. And sort of the halfway point of that circle is when you make it to the summit or you make the decision to return home and then the circle comes back. And so when you, walk back into your house and see your family again, you've closed that circle. And so you have to make sure on all these expeditions that you close that circle. And um, the tremendous amount of gratitude and respect and love for my spouse, Jennifer, over the um, 19 years that we've been married and 18 years, she was married to Alex Lowe. Um, that understanding of going outdoors and doing what we do and, and the risk within that. And that um, is uh, a tremendous amount of gratitude and, and thankfulness for Jennifer and her understanding that and may all of our spouses 
be as supportive of our loved one's goals and aspirations as she has been for mine. But um, yeah, the when you're on expedition, you go from sort of this a community based thing. So here I am. I wake up. It's Bozeman, Montana. There's fifty thousand people here. Ninety thousand in, in the three counties area. And everyone's getting out, doing their life. I might interact with someone at the store. I'll check in with my um, training partners. I'll go out and exercise. But when you're on expedition and it's just six of you, your life becomes those five other people. So you're you're tuned in as they're tuned into you. Is your friend dehydrated? Are you feeling cold? Do we need to have more food? And you're kind of watching over each other. And that playing fort, that that togetherness is really, that's the the communication and the happiness that means so much to me is coming away from these expeditions with this deeper friendship with your friends. Yeah, that was so well captured in the Meru film. What was that? 2015, the film came out, something around there. But I I thought, you know, I'm sort of a junkie for these types of films and the the team camaraderie and the depth of those relationships um, seemed like that film captured it better than, than, uh, I shouldn't say better because it's not a competition, but, but in a, in a, in a much more authentic way than I'd seen it captured before. Yeah. It wasn't about the numbers. It was about three individuals working together towards a common goal and the trials and tribulations that each of us had gone through. So there was, um, yeah. And thanks to uh, Jimmy and Renan for capturing the film while we're on the mountain in 2011 and to uh, Chai uh, and Jimmy for editing and bringing that film. Uh, to where it is. And so speaking of films, I kind of dig into this. I know that, um, you know, Alex and Jennifer's son, Max, your adopted son, Max is working on a film called Torn, which is largely an exploration of, of your family's arc. Um, what's a, what's the state of play with that, with that film? I, I, last I heard it was sort of in post-production. Um, can you tell us anything about it? Yeah. So Max Lowe, our oldest, uh, boy is, um, well, he's 32 now, so he's a he's a, a young man. He's launched. <laughs> he's launched. He's a tax-paying citizen in the United States. I can probably Indeed. say that. So, um, but his film is about um, our story with our life and Alex Lowe and and what it was like um, being there, and so coming to a lot of these questions with it. And it is um, set to release next year around September. Um, okay. So it was finished. It was supposed to come out this September, but due to COVID and um, not having theaters, um, it's a film working in uh, partnership with National Geographic. So they were like, we'll wait. And rather than just putting it straight to the digital streaming services, we're going to see if where the theaters are, So which is good. And it's been a wonderful process to do it as a family and um, to understand our um and what's unique to us and our our challenges and hopefully people will be able to afterwards be like, Oh, that was, that was kind of a neat thing. I learned from it. And there's, there was a small takeaway. Yeah. And it has to be such a, an amazing kind of experience for you being such a, 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 a part of the story, but also this moment for, for Max coming into this, this sort of directorial debut on the, on the, Hopefully, as it plays out on the big screen, that's also got to be a great moment of pride for 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 you and your wife as well. Yeah, we're 
it's a good thing. And storytelling via the film is such a it's such a rich medium, and yeah. you can in, in an hour and a half you can tell so much. So there's um, really we're happy for them. Well, super. So let's shift gears back to, to climate a little bit. I want to just call out uh, more explicitly, Protect Our Winters, an organization that, you, that you're affiliated with. There are so many groups doing important work with climate, with the environment. Uh, how did Protect Our, Our Winters arrive on your radar screen? And why did you make the choice to, uh, to affiliate with this great organization? Yeah, Jeremy founded it. I I believe 2007. So, um, and then 2011, he invited me to be on the board. We went and climbed Denali together. And so we'd been friends and acquaintances. And so, but it's been a wonderful opportunity and great organization to see it grow to where it is. A wonderful group of colleagues that I'm on the board of directors with that really um, make it worthwhile. And the beautiful part of this is that we are able to communicate with the 18 to 30 year old um, outdoor recreation person that is, um, they're passionate about being outdoors, whether it's trail running, skiing, hiking, um, being outdoors is their reason of living and comes back to why we live in Montana, that same conversation a little bit earlier. And with Protect Our Winners, we're showing this group of people that are outdoor enthusiasts, here's the science. This is what climate change is. These are some experts that can help you talk about it. And we're encouraging them to talk about it. We're giving them permission to talk about it. We're giving them the responsibility to talk about it. And we're giving them the tools to talk about it. And that whole process of civic engagement has been, it's been a lot of fun to see how it's grown and that there's, protect our winter winters chapters that have sprouted up volunteer chapters in, in, in Europe and in Asia just on their own, because people are like this message resonates with sure. our community. We want to help out. And so there's, um, and I think the more voices that team together that are climate aware, then the better off we are. And Greta Thunberg and her work in the last uh, couple of years as a young person has been, it's been a great. It's been great to see that for um, for children, young adults of that age, to be like, "Wow, here's some that I can do this too," and they're dedicated to it. And it's not something that's abstract. This is something that's going to affect this the future of, of these young people's lives. Yeah, how would you um, advise people hearing this, or just people in general who who, who sort of feel compelled to? to maybe want to try to get involved in this space? I mean, what, should, what first step should people take? The initial step is, um, is, is living a purposeful life. So doing what you can to minimize your travel, um, re, you know, being mindful of the type of food you consume and, and its impact on the planet um, and doing the best you can recycling. And we, we get that and we're moving towards that. But the way our economy functions and the market externalities that are beneficial and detrimental to both the carbon industry and the renewable industry are the result of legislative action. So to get the ball moving and to get the flywheel of innovation under foot and to get ideas going, we need 
market externalities that support renewable energy and climate awareness. And the only way we can work that out is through the ballot box. I mean, we are a democracy. And so having leaders that identify these as a as an existential as an existential threat to humanity, both in the near term, and I'll use near term as 40 years, in the long term as in 200 years, having those type of elected officials will help us sustain the health of this planet. And it's where we are now is it's not about, oh, save the planet or anything like this. We have to save the planet so we can save humanity and finding that balance between a carbon intensive lifestyle, which we all live and we're all guilty of and we're all living the benefit and to make that transition to a a less impactful lifestyle. And, so, and that whole transition is happening as we speak. And we, as the saying is, we are the first generation to completely understand the effects of anthropogenic climate change and quite possibly could be the last generation to create effective change. So every day we dilly-dally here in 2020, the effect in 40 years would be a lot a lot more profound. And so the way I look at this from a climber's standpoint, a metaphor analogy, if we will, and it's like, well, yeah, I always get up early and I'm like, get going earlier than everyone says, oh, we're going to start at three. I'm like, well, let's start at two. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it drives my climbing partners nuts, but they all know that's my MO. And yep. because 15 minutes in, in the morning at the dark can be an hour in the evening when you're tired and late and getting ahead of things like that. So that preparedness is something that um, we need to bring into a, into a societal perspective. Yeah. You know, we had on the podcast of several months ago, Rob Davies, and I don't know if you know Rob, but he's a professor at Utah state uh, physicist by training, but also a really powerful climate communicator. And he was so hopeful in our conversation. And I asked him why he was hopeful. And he said, well, I'm hopeful because, you know, to use a climbing metaphor, we really haven't even roped up yet. We haven't really even started to take this problem, this challenge seriously. You know, and in his view, the solutions are not necessarily obvious, but uh, there are some very actionable ones. How would you, one of the things that I think is a big challenge in this, in this day and age is, is information, how to get good information, how to make sure that information that's coming at you is, is of high quality and not just sort of part of your individual filter bubble. What do you look for, for information and how do you make choices about what information is uh, credible or not? Yeah. So <laughs> if you haven't watched the Social Dilemma, a film by Jeff Orlowski. Um, it's on Netflix. I, I recommend you take a take forty minutes or an hour out of your life and watch that, and you'll learn about um, this nascent technology, social media, handheld computers, and it's only twelve, fifteen years old, and we really don't know how that is. Yeah. Um, we're seeing some of the effects, and that film is is eye awakening. And I, um, Justin, I'm, I'm not sure how old your children are, but um, it's as a parent, it's certainly something. And we have watched it as our family, and all of us have made changes to our how we consume social media. And so there's a lot of, um, so there's that. So imagine 
we have this uh, handheld microcomputer in our, I mean, there's more processing power in a, in a modern cell phone than there was what we landed Apollo 11. So always, when you keep that in mind, you're like, oh, it's got a lot of power in there. And I can open it up. I can go to Google Earth and I can look at a picture of the mountain range and see if I want to go there. I can find, I have a dictionary instantly at my hand. I have a, um, a dictaphone. So I, I can, it, 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 I mean, there's all these wonderful things that do a great job with it. And the challenge within, once we get into social media and both the the two dominant properties, Facebook and Instagram, are owned by Facebook and under the control of Mark Zuckerberg. And there's Twitter and there's a few other ones, but there's basically three of these large powerhouses. Um, TikTok is happening at, to, to, I mean, at the younger age, and I'm, I'm, I still haven't signed up or I know what's going on there. But when you have these, you have a um, Algorithms, as one of the commentators in The Social Dilemma noted, noted there are opinions that are put into a mathematical equation. So the more that you go down a certain trail, um, say climate change, the more climate change information your phone will be delivering to you. And when I was a child, there was three television channels, and the news came on at at five o'clock for national and five thirty for local. And if you miss the news, then you miss the news. And that was it. Newspapers yep. came and there wasn't this, oh, I'm gonna go on demand and I'm gonna find it and sort of click through it or um go onto YouTube, which is an algorithm driven um TV type thing. And so there's um but to um to main maintain impartiality, um I try to have as as many um as, as much input as I can in, in as far as my news. So a subscription to say either the New York times or the Washington post, one of the reputable national newspapers that still has a robust reporting staff and is doing investigative reporting. Um, right. Our PBS television, um, the, the McNeil Lair news hour with Judy Woodruff. That is my television news. Um, I trust them. The same thing with, public radio here in uh, throughout the nation, but particularly in Montana. And there's no, um, when I listen to public radio, I can trust I'm getting an unbiased is, is I mean, some people think that public radio and PBS is, um, it's sort of like, it's like this secret plot from Fidel Castro coming from <laughs> the grave to like make us un-American, but yeah. I go with them as being reputable and I can, um, I can trust with them. And they also, um, in say our, uh, the native American news that all of the, um, public radio stations in Montana, that they have that segment on there, that they're giving voice to groups that might not necessarily have a regular place in the commercial driven media. Yeah, I think that's well put. And, you know, the, the, the sort of punchline to me is seek out diverse sources of information that are reputable and, and, and understanding that a lot of what we end up seeing is driven by an algorithm. Maybe make choices that try to break that algorithm, right? That that sort of give you alternatives to um, things that just sort of can, can confirm your existing worldview. Um Conrad, this has been fantastic. I want to be respectful of your time. You have a lot going on on your plate today, but I do want to call attention to an event you have coming up on the 19th of October, Send the State. Uh, this is a Protect Our, Our Winters event. Can you tell us a little bit about it? What's going to be happening? 
Yeah, I'll be joining uh, Max Lowe, our oldest son, and we'll be um, doing a, a video conference slideshow kind of call, something like that. And um, it'll be neat. We'll have a conversation. Um, as a parent, I'm a month away from being 58. Max just turned 32. And the uh, different uh, where we're at um, and why it's important. And so there's um, it's great to see that. And it's, um, I guess, for Jenny and I, one of the happiest things is that it makes us that we've done a good job parenting and there's no one right way or wrong way was that our children are civically minded and they're engaged and that they want to vote and they realize what's at stake. And that's, um, that's a really good thing. And hopefully we'll share some of that in our presentation. Awesome. Well, we look forward to that. We encourage listeners to get out there and, and, and check it out and check out protect our winters and above all else, get out there and vote. Voting is underway. I filled out my absentee ballot this morning and I encourage everybody to do the same or go to the polls or all of the above. Um, Conrad, it's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed learning more about your worldview, your, your, your approach to life and uh, great. Thanks for spending some time with us today. And thank you, Justin. And um, even though we're three hours and 15 minutes away from each other, from Missoula to Bozeman, we're in the same state and um, I can't wait to meet up with you and go for a trail run. And um, yeah, may, the the anxiety of the where we are right now in 2020 and the stress that a global pandemic has created um, let's collectively use this as a way to look at life through a purpose-driven perspective of what is important to us and how we interact with our fellow humans and that's um there's Whenever there's something challenging or difficult, there's there's a there's a lesson in there. We just have to be open to understanding it and seeing it and listening to it. Absolutely. That's well put. Thank you, Conrad. Justin, thank you. And thanks, listeners, for tuning in um, and, and for an hour of your time. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. A New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot with support from the University of Montana College of Business and Consolidated Electrical Distributors. A.J. Williams is our producer. Jeff Amet, John Wicks, and VTO made our music. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. If you like what you heard, tell your friends about us. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.